1: Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Childers. We're continuing our discussion about homosexuality, specifically addressing the question today, can Christians agree to disagree? We'll talk about it with a special guest in just a moment. My guest today is Alan Schliemann, an author and speaker for Stand to Reason, which is a phenomenal apologetics ministry. We've had some Stand to Reason folks on the podcast before with uh, Tim Barnett and Amy Hall. And uh, so Alan is a part of the Stand to Reason team where he blogs and has a podcast and does a series of videos that provide really good kind of quick answers to really complicated questions. And what I love about Alan is he really excels at making those complex and complicated issues really accessible to the average Joe. So he's known for teaching on some of the most controversial issues of our time. He is not shy. So he talks about abortion, (laughs) evolution, uh, homosexuality, bioethics, and uh, a lot having to do with Islam. And so he has spoken to thousands of students and adults across the country at churches and conferences, college campuses, regularly is a guest on TV and radio. And so there's basically no one more qualified to bring wisdom to the discussion we're going to have today to the question we're going to talk about today. So Alan, thanks so much for being here. I'm I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast.
2: Well, it's my pleasure, Elisa. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Me too. And I'm deeply thankful for you, uh, to you for the ministry you do for the body of Christ. I'm glad you're willing to talk about some of these more controversial topics. And so today, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're going to start a two part series on the topic of Christianity and same sex relationships. So, on today's episode, we're going to ask the question, should Christians divide over LGBT issues? And honestly, this is one of the most common questions I get via email through my website. It's one that I get a lot of pushback on people making assumptions about it or saying, "You know, hey, we need to remain in Mm -hmm. unity no matter what. So it's very confusing for people, I think. And of course, it's an incredibly relevant topic for our generation because our culture has already made the shift. And of course, this has caused many Christians to rethink the issue. Has the church gotten this right? Is this biblical what mm-hmm. we believe about it? So uh, of course, all of us, if, if you're alive in 2020, we all have people in our lives who uh, identify somewhere in on the LGBT spectrum, uh, somebody who's, who's gay or someone in our family who experiences same-sex attraction on some level. So this becomes a deeply important thing for us to not only think about, but to really care about because how we think about this is going to directly affect the people that we love and care about. So Ellen, what are, just before we kind of dive into the question, mm-hmm. what are some things to bear in mind as we think this topic through?
2: Well, uh, I think like you, I, want, I, I would just add that I too also um, <clears throat> have friends and family. In fact, I would I'd say close friends and, and close family who I see on a regular basis that identify themselves as gay or lesbian. Um, and who uh, also people who I know that identify, who would say they have same-sex attraction, but do not try to satisfy those desires. Mm. Uh, they try to, you know, they identify themselves as Christians. They want to follow Jesus Christ. They want to obey the commands of scripture, and they're not at all trying to satisfy those desires. So I would say that I too have friends and family who are close to me. And so this, this Topic is very personal uh, to me because of these relationships, and um, uh, I, I think, as as you do, we we value relationships because people are important. People are made in God's image, and um, there's uh, because of that. You know, these people are are intrinsically valuable, like everybody else, mm-hmm. um, and uh, therefore, there's no place for degrading behavior or coarse joking, whatever. And so, um, I, I hope that as we go about this discussion and we talk about these things that people will recognize that, you know, if we're, if we're trying to respond to a particular argument or we're trying to respond to a particular, uh, claims being made, we're trying to respond here to the reasons and to the arguments and to the facts of the matter. But that doesn't mean that we, um, hate these individuals or, um, want the worst for them or, or anything like that. I mean, yeah. uh, so I would just want that to be clear up front. Because I know that some of the topics that we're going to be covering are, are sensitive and we're going to be talking perhaps about um, potential harm that could be uh, experienced by people who identify as LGBT. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times people think, well, if you're responding to these arguments, it's because you don't care about these people. And right. I would just say that's simply not true. I mean, I don't know about for you, but for me, I've been speaking on the subject for almost a decade and a half and yeah. I have sat down with people who vigorously disagree with me and people who agree with me, but all sorts of people and have tried to listen to their stories and to uh, to show compassion to them. Because this is, as you said, unless you're living in Iraq, this is a this is a watershed issue. It's a watershed topic. It's it's so significant because people are um, seeing themselves and identifying in this way and believing that this is who they are. And then you have some Christians who are responding in an, in a negative way or in a hostile way, and in a, and in a manner that's unbecoming of a Christian. Mm. And all of this is just a big confusion and a big mess. And so, mm. um, man, I'm I'm super sympathetic to people who just kind of want to throw their hands up and say, "I want nothing to do with this." Yes. But, but the reality is, you know, like you said, we have friends and family and, and who uh, identify this way, and we want to communicate the truth, but do it in a loving, graceful way. The way, yeah. the way Jesus would communicate.
1: Well, and that's such a great point because that is the temptation, isn't it? Just to kind of go, oh, whatever, you know, let's just remain unified. Let's just agree to disagree and and put it all aside and call it a day. But as I've stated on previous podcasts, you know, there are a lot of people that I love who, as you mentioned, experience same-sex attractions. This is something that they deal with on a daily basis. And they, they actually don't feel safe in a church that would, would tell them that that's their identity, that they should just accept that and and live that out, that God would call uh, that holy or something like that. And so as tempting as it would be to throw up our hands, like we, we have to think rightly about this. Mm-hmm. And it is a really divisive topic. And, and I would just say, not just on the more conservative side of things, but on the more progressive side of things, it's very divisive. There are people in the progressive church that wouldn't want to be in unity with someone who would not be affirming of same sex marriage or same sex relationships and. Uh, a perfect example of this just to kind of lay the foundation for this conversation today is that uh, I've talked a bit about Jen Hatmaker on this podcast. Uh, for those who who maybe aren't in the loop a few years ago, she became arguably the highest profile, self-proclaimed evangelical to go to the affirming side and uh, affirming in the sense of uh, affirming same sex relationships and same sex marriage and and believing that those can be within the confines of biblical Christianity and designated as holy before God. And so this caused just a firestorm of controversy, and people were confused, and there's all kinds of hot takes and all kinds of articles written. But essentially, uh, Jen Hatmaker has really gone the progressive route. Her podcast became just a veritable who's who of progressive Christian leaders. So she's firmly rooted in that camp. But very interestingly, this January, she launched a podcast series where she invited uh, several very iconic and high profile evangelical leaders, people who haven't publicly come out as affirming of the same sex uh, marriage position. And this actually caused controversy in her community. So she got a lot. Lot of pushback from her people mm. on Facebook and even had to post about it and saying many of you have expressed concern and dismay that I've, I've hosted a couple of these leaders who aren't affirming of the LGBTQ community. And so she's she's basically having to say, I hear you. Um, but But for years, she says several progressive faith leaders and LGBT folks hold a door open for me. And and this was before she became affirming. And so she was saying it was that that really gave me a safe space to process my feelings and and basically come on over to their side. So she, she's basically telling her people, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build a bridge. I'm trying to to make a way for, for people to process some of these things. So I think that's really relevant because obviously what she's trying to do is bridge the gap between the affirming crowd and the non-affirming crowd in the hopes that the non-affirming crowd will become affirming. And so there's just probably never been a better time for us to, to have this conversation. And so I think what we can do is just go tackle the question head on. So Alan, offer us some thoughts on Christian unity, what that means, what the Bible might say about false teachers. Is this something that Christians can just agree to disagree about? Or is this a gospel issue? Is this something that we should divide over?
2: Yeah, that's uh, a, you're right. This is a very important question. And I think my answer would would be different, or I'd respond differently in different circumstances. So um, the, the two circumstances that I have in mind, one of them would be in the context of churches and pastors and teachers. Mm. And then and, and then we could kind of look at this question about d- dividing over the subject uh, in the context of individuals, like friends and family that, that you have. So let me, let me take the right. first one uh, yeah. first, in the context of churches and pastors and teachers. Um, and let me begin by just laying a foundation and just saying, look, I think the Bible teaches that sex can only occur between a married man and, and woman— And I'd also argue that the the Bible teaches that homosexual sex is sin, and and indeed not just homosexual sex. Any sexual activity outside of a married man or woman would be considered sin. And -hmm. and so I know we're going to unpack that uh, as we talk today, but um, this has been the church teaching for 2,000 years, and it's also been Judaism's teaching for thousands of years before that. And so both Christians and Jews have never considered uh, it okay to engage in homosexual sex. Now, having said that, um, pro-gay theology, which is the attempt to take the Bible and and suggest that it could be um, gay affirming, is a, is therefore really a a serious and very significant departure from biblical teaching, from biblical orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And I would claim that it's an example of wolves in sheep's clothing and, and these, because these wolves are teaching something very dangerous, and, and here's why I would say it's dangerous: the Bible, uh, especially in 1 Corinthians six nine, teaches that sexual sin is an egregious sin, and that regular pursuit of such of these uh, of some of these egregious sins exemplifies someone who's not in the kingdom of God. In other words, it's it's making a statement about the nature of their salvation or their or their lack of. Uh, now, of course, this applies to a whole bunch of other sins. I'm not saying that homosexuality is being singled out. First uh, Corinthians 6 talks about a whole bunch of sins that if you're engaged in ongoing, unrepentant sin in these issues, then uh, we would call into question, you know, whether you can enter into the kingdom of God. OK, mm. so the question then becomes, well, what should then our posture be towards a church that actively preaches or or celebrates Uh, let's just say um, adultery or incest or fornication or whatever. Well, we would probably think that that church is is way off base and we probably wouldn't attend it and we probably wouldn't encourage our friends or family to attend it either. And so my question is then, well, how is a church who preaches or celebrates homosexuality any different? How would this be a different category, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I acknowledge that we have experienced a cultural shift in how we see this topic. And uh, I know Christopher Yuan talks a lot about this in his book, Holy Sexuality. He says we, yeah. we, we, we've seen a, a change in the way people think about homosexuality. It's no longer about how we are, but it's who we are. In other words, people who identify as gay do not say that um, they are just engaging in certain homosexual behaviors. Rather, they say they are gay. That is who they are. OK, yeah. um, anyway, so so I know that's why it's in a different category, but I'm just speaking from a biblical perspective. Why should our response to a church or pastor or a teacher who actively promotes and celebrates this particular sexual sin be any different than how I would respond to a church that celebrates any of the other sexual sins? OK, mm. and so um, I think anybody who any Person or, or church that promotes these type of sexual sins, including homosexuality, would be exactly an example of what Jesus warns against in Matthew 7. You know, Jesus says, These people look like sheep, but inside they're wolves. And, and then he goes, You know, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus is talking about people who practice lawlessness, who are wolves in sheep's clothing, because they look like us, but they practice lawlessness. And And this is precisely who. Um, I think Jesus is referring to the kinds of people who would actively promote a sexual sin like homosexuality. So, so when it comes to churches or pastors and teachers, my, my take on this would be, man, this is, this is a serious, it's a salvation issue. We, we, we can't be teaching false things that the Bible is clear about. And we shouldn't be giving confidence to people that if they engage in this particular behavior in an unrepentant, ongoing way that they can be saved. Like this is yeah. serious. It's, it's, it has eternal consequences. So with regards to that sort of like macro, like, you know, how should we deal with, you know, pastors or churches? I, I think, yes, in a sense we, we do need to divide over that.
1: Yeah. Um, like if a person's church changes its stance on this, it's time to find a new church, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I would, because it, now I'd be wondering, well, Wait a minute. What What is this church doing? They like they they don't even know how to um, understand the Bible, or they're willing to twist Scripture to capitulate to cultural pressure. Which is probably, you know, a little bit of both that's going on when these churches change. Yeah. Okay.
1: Now you mentioned there's another category, though. Of of you've got your pastors, your leaders, your churches. That's one category, and in in it, and I'm glad you're making this distinction because as I've studied Christian unity. There, as you study it, there really becomes clearly this sort of two different types of categories. There's the the average churchgoer. There's the brother and sister in Christ, and then and then it's like the Bible has no tolerance for the leaders and the teachers, though, to promote some of these ideas. Not that it's tolerating things among the lay level as well, but but there's there's definitely uh, a distinction of categories. Uh, the Bible even says that you know teachers are held to a higher standard. But yeah. but talk a little bit about you know, just in your small group, if somebody in your, what do you do when somebody in your small group says, Hey, I I don't think this is right, or I've changed my view on this. How is, what would the difference be?
2: Right. So, so to these kind of situations where you're dealing with friends or family, um, I would say that the error is the same, but the impact is different. In other words, um, it's entirely possible for you know, friends or family that you might have, have or college students or whatever to be completely confused on the subject because, well, because probably their you know leaders have confused them or um, they've just bought into some of these false ideas um, and, and, and wolves have led, them to, have led them astray. But I think it has a different weight to it than when a church or a pastor or some other kind of leadership is advancing the view. So as I said, in the context of church, I think we should sever from that church or teacher uh, but when it comes to individuals, I, I I tend to approach this differently. I still maintain my friendships with people who differ from me on this. Uh, and I think it plays out differently because the, the nature of the relationship is different. Mm-hmm. Now, would I say they're not saved? Well, no. I, I mean, I think an individual could hold a wrong view on this subject but still be saved. Now, th- they may not be a Christian, but it's not because— they're errant in this particular theology. I don't think that this is a decisive indicator. Um, so mm-hmm. they, they could absolutely still be safe, for example. So I, I typically don't, you know, end friendships or relationships over people who differ from me on these things. Um, now, it gets it becomes a little bit different if they begin to now champion the cause. Right. And then right. then they start advancing this teaching and then and then I put them in, a, in the category of a false teacher. Yeah. Um and so at that point I'd say well no now I now I'd probably have to try to correct them because I think so much is at stake
1: well, and I right. think also I, I'm glad you brought up the point about somebody. Somebody could be kind of confused about this issue, especially somebody who maybe didn't have any kind of a Christian background. They've been in, all of their morality has pretty much been informed by culture. <clears throat> they they accept Jesus as their Savior. They make Him Lord of their life. It might take a minute for all of those things to work themselves out as the Holy Spirit works that sanctification uh, in that person's life. Uh, I, I've definitely seen that when we did uh, all kinds of street ministry growing up, mm. like when people first get saved, it, you know, they don't just become a, a perfect Christian overnight. You know, it's as we all know, none of us do, it's a lifelong process. And so a lot of times I think this can be a discipleship issue. It can be the type of issue that as somebody is discipled as uh, s- stronger people in the faith, bring them along. And then those things get corrected and worked out as the Holy spirit shines light on things. Uh, I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, on the affirming side of things, they will actually take the verse where Jesus talks about, you know, the the wolves dressed up in sheep's clothing, the one you mentioned to to identify, and they'll use this actually against the the non-affirming side of things. And so um, just as a little teaser for the listeners in the next episode, the one that we're going to hit as part two we're going to talk about the Reformation Project, which is a movement led by Matthew Vines, uh, essentially to change Christians' minds on this issue. And they have uh, ten points that make their case, and they're they're actually trying to make their case from the Bible. They're teaching and training Christians how to have these conversations with their non-affirming friends to try to bring them over to the affirming mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. And and so, and this is in Matthew Vines' book as well. But he brings up this verse. He brought uh, they talked about this in a debate he had with Sean McDowell where he brings the verse about Jesus saying, you know, there there will be wolves that are secretly wolves, but they'll be dressed up like sheep. But how you'll identify those wolves will be by their fruit. And so... This is something that Matthew Vines promoted in his book, God and the Gay Christian. He kind of popularized it when that book came out, but it's been, again, not to just pick on Jen Hatmaker, but it's been really popularized by her. Mm -hmm. Um, She was in a uh, interview with Pete Ends on his podcast back in 2018. And so I'm going to read a quote from her. This is what she said as far as uh, this verse that that Matthew Vines had talked about before. She said, when I looked to the fruit of the non-affirming Christian tree, the fruit was so universally bad. It was suicide. It was broken families. It was folks kicked out of their churches. It was homeless teenagers. It was self hatred and self harm. It was depression, crushing loneliness, separation from God, self-imposed, and if we're being honest, the fruit of the tree is rotten. Mm. And so she has continued to promote this idea, especially on Twitter. She, I've got like five tweets of hers pulled up on my laptop right now where she's saying, if it's not good news for women, for people of color, for the LGBTQ community, for the immigrant, for the poor, then it is not good news. The fruit will tell you where is life. Look hard <clears> because there is Jesus. And so she she promotes this quite often, this idea of looking to the fruit. And she even says it'll cut through the uh, the Christian hate like a hot knife through butter mm-hmm. on Twitter. She says this. And so in, in her view and in Matthew Vine's view, you look at the fruit and that will tell you if the person is a false teacher or not. And so essentially by following their logic, they would say that People like you and me are the false right. teachers. So I don't know if you want to unpack that. Yeah, for us sure. A bit. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So this is yeah. I, they're they're pointing to Matthew seven where Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruits. So <clears throat> they're taking the word bad fruit and interpreting it as the harm that she listed in that long. Um, you know, list of things, right? Um, now, yeah. I, I do want to re- I do want to respond to this, Elisa. But let me just offer just a quick thought before I jump into my response. Um, sure. By by responding to this particular argument, I I don't want to suggest that we as Christians should be somehow unconcerned about the anguish or the physical welfare, mm. welfare or the suicide or or psychological distress that anybody experiences. Okay. So nothing right. nothing I'm about to say should be interpreted to mean that I don't think it's important or that we shouldn't do something about it. Okay. I'm just simply trying to explain why I think this particular reasoning, why the reasoning is mistaken. And I'm not suggesting that their concern for people's spiritual or emotional or physical welfare is mistaken. That's totally legitimate. And everybody Christian or not should be concerned about that. Okay. So I just want people to understand that, that I'm responding here to the reasoning that when When Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit, I just want to respond to that interpretation as being consistent with what Jen Hatmaker or Matthew Vines or whoever says, okay? So according to Jen Hatmaker and Vines' interpretation, um, on their understanding of what Jesus said, any unpleasantness Uh, difficulty or anguish or or even a tragedy like suicide would qualify as a bad fruit. Now, if they're correct, then all sorts of immoral behavior could potentially be justified if avoiding that immoral behavior leads to hardship. In other words, Hmm. virtually any command of God could be annulled, right? So just, just take, for example, The biblical teaching on marriage and divorce, right? Um, Just think about how much distress or anger or psychological pain would be caused if people had to follow the biblical guidelines of marriage and divorce. Uh, You know, someone, for example, who's in a marriage and this person has fallen out of love. If you to take a you know a, a common phrase out of love from the person right. they're married to, and now the Bible demands that they remain married to this person despite the distress, despite the anger, despite the psychological pain. Now, according to Jesus, we're supposed to deny ourselves and our desires and to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And so yes, that's going to be difficult. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be uh, sometimes a significant sacrifice and suffering in fact Jesus promises us that there'll be a bunch of trials and persecution and difficulty in following him faithfully right yeah. but according to to hat maker and vines and so on and so forth that's bad fruit yet Jesus is calling such a trial or these kinds of difficulties as blessings in Matthew 5 so this is just first of all to show that according to their reasoning if if the way they're interpreting Jesus' statement of bad fruit is being the difficulty in anguish, well, then you could potentially annul any command in Scripture based on that reasoning. So, this is what we would call, um, at standard reason, taking the roof off or reductio ad absurdum. You, you take their view, follow it to its logical conclusion, and show that since the conclusion leads to an absurdity, you can therefore reject the rationale that led to the absurdity and that's that's yeah. what i was trying to show there is that on their reasoning any any biblical command could be annulled okay yeah but now i want to go back and look and see well what did jesus mean then if he didn't mean bad fruit equaling all of these sort of physical and spiritual harms well yeah. when you read the context of what jesus said in that passage it turns out that his teaching um, doesn't vindicate uh, Hatmaker's interpretation, but rather it condemns her interpretation. In fact, I would argue it even condemns her and, and Vines and other people who advocate for it. Because think about this. Jesus warns, okay, so he, he warns people of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, right? And he asks, well, how do you know the difference? And Jesus says, by their fruit. And then he teaches, and he says, you know, good teachers yield good fruit and false teachers yield bad fruit. And then he defines who the good teachers are. He says, the good teachers are the ones who do the will of the Father. This is Matthew 7, 21. And Mm. bad teachers are the ones who practice lawlessness. This is verse 23. And so in reality, this is, I would argue, fairly straightforward. The fruit that Jesus is referring to is not about the consequence of the teaching, but rather the the conduct that's promoted by the teacher. Mm. So think about this. In the discussion that we're having about Bible and homosexuality and so on and so forth, who is the one who is amidst all the Christians in sheep's clothing, encouraging people to practice lawlessness as it pertains to homosexual behavior? Well, it's the people who are advancing pro gate theology. <laughs> That's right. the bad fruit, according to what Jesus says in that passage. And so, therefore, the passage doesn't vindicate advocates of pro-gay theology. The passage condemns advocates of pro-gay theology. Yeah. And so really, these pro-gay theology advocates are, are have just simply turned Jesus's teaching literally upside down.
1: And interestingly, one thing Sean McDowell brought up in his debate with Matthew Vines was he went into the Greek even where the word bad before the word fruit in Greek is paneros, which has a moral connotation. It's not like a good feelings kind of word. Mm. It's actually moral evil right. fruit. Moral, right. You know, it has a moral connotation there. So that, that just even strengthens what you're saying. Yes. Uh, now, what would we say, and this was what kind of confused me when I was first looking at these arguments, was then the verse that came to my mind was, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, what if somebody comes out of the closet and they, they become affirming or they or they say, look, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. I'm going to just go into this life. This is my new identity, and I'm not going to try to surrender that to the Lord, Or, but that this is something that God would say is holy in my life. And then you see that they are seem to be exhibiting joy and peace and patience and more kindness. You know, is that what the Bible is referring to when it says like look for that kind of fruit? Or how do we unpack that?
2: Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here in this particular passage. Uh, yeah. But but I don't uh, I don't deny that um, someone who's um, engaged in some type of disobedience, and for that matter, even an atheist could potentially. Uh, uh, be loving towards people. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, uh, what we're trying to suggest is that a person who is in not complete obedience to God in every single aspect is never going to exhibit any type of, uh, loving or compassionate behavior. No, of course not. Right. Every human being is made in the image of God, even a Richard Dawkins, uh, even a Matthew Vines, even a Alan Schliemann. And I mean, anybody is so, uh, that, that, image of God that is still present in everyone's lives still is a reflection of God. And we still have the potential to do uh, good things, you know? So, uh, but that's, that's not the good fruit that Jesus has in mind in this particular area, because Jesus says here and elsewhere, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so that is, that is a hallmark of a person who claims to be following God. Now, uh, Can someone certainly falter in that at some points? Of course they can. Uh, But we would also hope that the trajectory would be that these people would be repentful of a a sin, that I would repent when I sin, and that I'd try to turn Mm -hmm. to follow Jesus. So again, it's obedience and and showing to, to God.
1: And I think, you know, the, what you said is so apt. It's like, we have to look at the passage that's being used. And clearly Jesus had a very specific definition of what he meant by fruit, the fruit of of a good tree, the fruit of a bad tree. I mean, sin is fun for a season, right? It it can make somebody seem joyful or peaceful or more uh, have a sense of relief. But like you mentioned all through the Bible, we see themes of you're going to be hated for my sake. You have to lay down uh, your life, you have to pick up your cross, uh, and I think of even Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. He kind of, in a way, wanted to follow God, but he didn't want to give up his wealth. He didn't want to give up those things, and and Jesus, he just pressed on that, just so, just so beautifully as Jesus does. He he gets to the very depths of our motives, and the message just throughout Scripture is that this is something like when we become Christians, we submit ourselves to a new lord. We are not the lord of our own lives anymore. Mm-hmm. And and that's going to require obedience in areas that may not always feel good. There are areas in my life where I struggle to obey and it's hard for me, mm-hmm. but I do my best to do that even though it doesn't feel good and it actually causes me uh distress and dismay at times. But the joy of following Jesus, there's just nothing that can compare to that, even though our sinful flesh is kind of always at war with the spirit of God that's, that's working in our lives. And so I think that's, that's just a really good thing for people to bear in mind is that when Jesus is talking about spotting false teachers, false prophets, the fruit he's looking for has to do with their obedience to God. And mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to do with just good feelings or something that's going to make you feel better. And, right. and so that's, that's a just a really important point. And so in the next episode, and we still have some time on this episode, so we'll we'll go ahead and cover this, but we're gonna we're gonna talk about the Reformation Project, what it is. You even went to the conference. I want to hear your story, I wanna hear what that was like for you. I've heard Sean, I think you and Sean McDowell went together, I've heard his his story about about being there. But they have on their website ten biblical points. And actually what we just discussed is one of the points. It's the identification of the fruit, using that verse <coughs> from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. But another point that I think is probably the most popular point I that I hear get brought up in this conversation has to do with what the Bible is actually talking about, particularly in a couple of New Testament verses. And so I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with this argument. You may have heard, you know, when the Bible says homosexuality, that's a brand new word that didn't even exist when the text was written. In fact, it's an, it's a German word, an English word that wasn't even coined until the 1800s. And the argument gets compounded on top of that, that not only that, not only was it not even coined until the 1800s, but the concept that we m- as modern people understand to be homosexuality didn't even exist in the ancient world. So whatever the mm-hmm. Bible says about this is not applicable to how we as modern people understand homosexuality. And it has to do even with uh, the words Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10. And so I want us just as we close out this episode, we have time to do it. Let's unpack this, this whole concept. And I'll read a quote from the Reformation Project. It says sure. in, in the context of this point, <clears throat> which I think is their point number nine, it says, in order to be faithful to scripture, we must recognize a distinction between the same-sex behavior the Bible condemns and the desires of LGBTQ Christians for love, companionship, and family today. And so they're essentially saying, yes, what the, Bi- the Bible does con- condemn a certain type of homosexual behavior, but it's not the monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships that we know today. So that's a lot to unpack, Ellen, but I believe in you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, glad you have faith in me, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, th- so that last point you just brought up, I think is really foundational to understanding the Reformation Project's um, enterprise, and in fact, all of pro-gate theology and i want I want your listeners to understand this. You can pretty much uh, ca- uh, characterize in a nutshell. This, the new form of pro-gay theology that's being articulated today by Matthew Vines and um, Jen Hatmaker and the Reformation Project. And, and here's, here's, here's their view in a nutshell. They will typically say, yes, the Bible does condemn homosexuality. Absolutely, they do. it does. They say, however, it only condemns abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms of homosexuality. Like right. homosexual gang rape, or, you know, master slave sodomy, or pederasty, men who have sex with boys, or other types of coercive or exploitive forms of homosexual sex. Right. But they say, modern day gays and lesbians do not engage in those abusive or coercive behaviors. So therefore, what the Bible prohibits, the, the Bible's prohibitions, then therefore do not apply to them to, today, right. right? In other words... The Bible condemns that kind of homosexuality that happened in the past, these abusive, coercive, exploitive kinds, but not the loving, consensual relationships that are exhibited by gays and lesbians today. That is, in a nutshell, the the most— kind of up-to-date argument that you hear from the Reformation Project or from advocates of pro gay theology in general, okay? And so you, you kind of mentioned at the beginning. So I want—so as we talk about this particular passage, or even if your listeners can listen to the, to the next segment that we do, uh, as we look at the passages that they cite, they will take a passage that the Bible seems to suggest clearly that homosexual sex is sin— and they'll try to reinterpret it to say, "Oh no, no, it's referring to an abusive form of homosexuality, not a loving consensual homosexuality, you right. know so anyway, so you're absolutely right that that's that's key to understanding it so they come to this particular passage or these two passages, first Corinthians six and first Timothy one and uh uh so I'm looking at an n a s b translation, which is the one i I often use because it's mm-hmm. it's got a very, very literal translation, but First Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, so on and so forth, will inherit the kingdom of God. And so what they often will say is, well, look, the word homosexual didn't even appear in the English language until 1892, Uh, So how could it be referring? How could Paul be referring to homosexuals as we understand them today, right? Right. Um, And and they they try to argue that this is a reference to some type of exploitative form of homosexuality, not a loving one. Okay. Now let me. So so like everything that they say, there's some truth to what they're saying, but oftentimes they they take you too far, or they add additional truths which just completely you know go beyond what what the evidence shows, Um, I would argue that the word homosexual that's translated there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1 would be an incorrect translation if by homosexual you mean someone who experiences same-sex attraction. Yeah. In other words, the Bible there in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is not condemning someone who merely experiences same-sex attraction. That's not what the original Greek is saying there. Okay. We'll we'll get into that in a second. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if by the word homosexual, your understanding is someone who engages in the behavior of homosexual sex, well, then I think the term would be correctly translated as homosexual. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... This is why I I don't want people to be distracted by this claim that the word homosexual was only recently created. That's irrelevant. Because clearly same-sex behavior existed in Paul's day, which even the Reformation Project will acknowledge. The translators of the Bible simply just tried to figure out, well, what's a contemporary term to describe the specific activity that Paul had in mind? And so the important question then is whether the English word homosexual captures what Paul meant when he used the Greek word that's there, and the Greek word that Paul uses is arsenokoitai, which I'll admit, by the way, I only took a year of Greek. So if I'm mispronouncing it, all you who are <laughs> Greek yeah. experts, just, just give me a break here, okay? Now, um, there has been in a ton of research and study and papers on the meaning of arsenokoitai in 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 biblical theology and exegesis and so on and so forth, okay? So there's no shortage of discussion on this. And I would argue that um, there have been some tremendous scholars who who have written about this and argued that the understanding that we have today in our Bibles is correct. Uh, David Wright and Robert Gagnon are two scholars that come to mind that are, I would argue, two of the top scholars in the world who who, um, have written about this. Um, okay, so let's, let's take a look at the word and let's just see what these scholars say about it. Yeah. The the Greek word arsenokoitai, um, the Reformation project will point out is a term that Paul invented. <laughs> now, this is actually true. Uh, the first time we see the word arsenokoitai even appear in any Greek literature is when Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 6. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we know that this word that Paul invented and that's, you know, isn't commonly used in in Greek literature at the time, uh, really means homosexuals as we understand them today. Well, the word arsenokoitai really just comes from combining two words that are very common. Uh, The first word is arsenos, which literally means male. And the, the other word is koitin, which means to bed. So male and to bed. And so when you put the words arsenos, koitin together, the word literally means bedders of male or men who bed with males. Right. Okay. So this is why translators have looked at this word. And I think the NIV, not the, the 1984 version, but the 2011 version, uh, translates arsenokoitai as um, men who have sex with men.
1: Yeah, okay. I have the NIV right here. It does. It says, yeah. uh, nor adulterers, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men.
2: Right. Now, my NASB transit, uh, translates to homosexuals, but I think either one is fine, so long as you understand homosexual to mean someone who's engaging in homosexual behavior. Okay. Right. Now, so uh, in Hebrew, there's actually another phrase um, called, "is in the, the phrase is mishkav zakur. Again, my Hebrews, I only took a year of Hebrew, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably got that mispronounced, but mishkapsakur literally means lying with a male, and this was a phrase that the Jews used, which is similar to arsinokoytai, men who bed with males. This word mishkapsakur is a is a phrase that Jews used to 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 denote men having homosexual sex with other men, and so you could see Paul, you know, being a Jew knows Hebrew, and perhaps you know. Just look for a word similar to mishka in the Greek, which is arsenokoitai, to mean the same thing. Men who bed with males is what he's trying to suggest means people who have homosexual sex, okay? So that right there is just one reason why we think the the word homosexuals or men who have sex with men is a proper interpretation of the Greek word arsenokoitai. But there is a second reason which I think drives the point home even more, and it has to do with something that's written in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is simply a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and in some parts of it in Aramaic, uh, but it was later translated into Greek, and that Greek translation of the Old Testament was available during the first century time, and it was it was you know perhaps read by the apostles. Okay,
0: mm-hmm.
2: now there are two sentences from two verses in the Septuagint that include both of those um, uh, words from arsenokoitai. There's the word arsenos and koitin, the word, you know, male and to bed. So there's two, two verses in the Septuagint that include both of those words. And those two verses are Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13, which are the two verses, the only two verses in the entire Mosaic law that condemn homosexual sex. So think about this. Paul invents a word that literally means men who bed other males. And he creates that word by by combining two words that are found in the only two verses in the Mosaic law that specifically condemn homosexuality. (laughs) So this is why scholars today aren't like you know, just guessing or, you know, stabbing in the dark here with this, that they have good reason to translate it as homosexuals or men who've yeah. been almost other men, right? Yeah. And so notice there's, there's no indication that this is only referring to abusive or coercive or exploitative forms of homosexual sex because um, the Levitical prohibitions, you know, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 mm-hmm. were just – it simply says, you know, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. Notice this is an absolute prohibition against all forms of homosexual sex. Okay. In other words, the Bible there in Leviticus 18.22 is saying it's categorically rejecting all types of homosexual sex, not just abusive, coercive, or exploitive forms. Right. And so therefore, when Paul draws upon those verses to create this new term, um, it seems to suggest the same kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So those are those are two reasons why I think um, actually what when Paul what Paul had in mind is exactly what we're talking about today: men who are having sex with other men.
1: Yeah. Well, and Robert Gagnon, you mentioned him. He makes such a great point in his book, uh, "Homosexuality: Text and Hermeneutics." I believe that's what it called. It's called, although I don't have it right in front of me. But the sort of the aha moment for me when I read that book and actually heard him debate this. Is the point he makes is that when you take all of the the most prominent scholars in the field of sexuality and antiquity and biblical scholarship all surrounding that sort of thing, a lot of those scholars are actually gay themselves or they're they're not Christians they're some either atheist or agnostic or something along those lines and he he just lists scholar after scholar the authorities in the field who actually agree with his conclusion, and that is that even if the revisionists are right and there wasn't any sort of concept of a loving, monogamous, same-sex relationship, which he actually argues that's not true. There are examples in antiquity, even going all the way back into ancient Egyptian culture. So it clearly did exist. But Mm -hmm. let's even just say that, you know, that isn't what Paul was talking about. All of these scholars who are not Christians, who are gay themselves, agree with him that even if Paul wasn't aware of that, if he were aware of it, it wouldn't have changed his position and what he was uh, right. teaching in scripture either. So th- so that let, left me to conclude the only people who are doing that is this this modern sort of one little group of, of progressive Christians, really liberal Christians who are trying to change what the text says about it. Because the most prominent scholars are agreed with Gagnon, of course, because they they agree with him. They don't, you know, they're not going to view the Bible as authoritative. They don't really like the conclusion, but they're basically saying, yes, this, the Bible, this is what the Bible is teaching, which I thought was such an interesting point that he brought about. So as we close out this episode, is there a good resource you could recommend for just the average Christian out there that's just getting bombarded on social media with all of these biblical points and arguments? Is there, is there a real accessible good resource that you might re- recommend other than the STR website in which you've got lots of videos and resources there, but maybe a book or something along those lines?
2: Um, well, I, I think Kevin DeYoung has a good book.
1: Um, yes, that is a good book.
2: C- called uh, what the Bible actually says or really says about homosexuality. So that's a, it's a small book very accessible it's not like this huge read it's you know it's even shaped small and there's not that many pages right. uh sam elberry has a good book called is god anti gay um which also is a small book not massive and uh doesn't require you to know greek or anything like that so um i'd recommend either one of their books are excellent for yes. addressing this question um if you want a little bit longer of a book um, which still is accessible. I'd recommend Christopher Yuan's material. Um, yes. His recent book on holy sexuality. I actually I interviewed him on our on our broadcast um, last year on this, and his book is excellent. Yes. Covering this subject, um, celibacy, you know, singleness, a whole bunch of, a whole range of things. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And, uh, if your listeners don't know, I mean, he is a person who experiences same sex attraction. Yes, It says this, that does not define me. I do not want to obey those desires or satisfy them through. Through by behavior or through thought, but he yes. wants to live obediently to the commands of Christ, which is yes. uh, which is amazing, which is what we should all do. And
1: um, Yes. So. Next time, we're going to talk more about Reformation Project. We're going to dig down a little deeper into their biblical points and how uh, Christians can answer those points. And we're going to hear your story of attending their conference. So uh, everybody tune back in for that. Alan, thanks so much for being on the show today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or you can subscribe on YouTube and iTunes.